Welcome to another episode of Always Bev, The Ripple Effect. I am your host, Barb Jordan. They don't stop. Like, you, you know, they need to get help, but they, they usually don't stop. Um, they usually get caught at some point. It's just mm-hmm. a matter of, you know, when. In episode four, the episode titled Love Letters, a victim came forward and shared her story from years ago about when she was a student and how her teacher groomed her for years. In today's episode, I have an expert, an investigator who specializes in finding these types of predators, the predators that prey on children. If you need investigation done, I have the investigator for you. This introduction is just a short clip of her amazing bio. My guest today graduated from St. John's University with a major in criminal justice. She's certified as a forensic interviewer of children. She served 26 years combined working for U.S. Customs Service as a special agent and the Department of Homeland Security. She's worked with ICE, Immigrations, and Customs Enforcement. Once retired, she's worked with various investigative agencies. She speaks three languages. She is the president of ROC Investigative Group. That's R-O-K. She does criminal and civil investigations for attorneys. She has private clients. She loves the criminal work, but her specialty includes child pornography and exploitation. And today she will take us inside some of her investigations and what she has learned throughout her career. You know, and I don't give up. And that's one of the things that that stands by me. I never give up. If I'm if I'm working on a case, I am there until the end. Like I will not I will be relentless until I find out what the truth is. My guest today is Rosanna Lacitra. Rosanna, thank you so much for joining me today. Good morning, Barbara. You're very interesting. I've done a little research on you. And one of the things that I want our audience to know is that I can't see you, that you are so much uh, behind the scenes and you protect your identity. So because you do a lot of investigation work, I totally think it's awesome that you're not showing me who you are today. <laughs> yes, Barbara, thank you. Uh huh. Now, listen, you've got you've got a long and a healthy background, but you say you really have uh, a lot of experience, specifically something that really attracts you to these criminals and predators is the exploitation of children. What is it about protecting children that that draws so much of your attention? Yes. um, In the past, I'm a retired Department of Homeland Security special agent. During my time there, I did over 10 years of child pornography and child exploitation cases, criminal cases. And during that time, I was um, especially trained to interview victims and children. And I have to say that was my most rewarding work uh, during during the time that I was there. When I was working those cases, I felt that I made a difference, Um, usually in criminal cases when you're doing narcotics or money laundering or fraud. Um, usually there's not that much of a significant impact um, as you do when you actually investigate predators and um, pedophiles, so to speak. 
Is there a certain when you do your investigation and I realize that, you know, no case is identical. Do you agree to that? That no case yes, is the same? Every case is different. Yes. So what is it? What are some things that people can look for for warning signs for somebody that might be a predator with a child? So there everybody's different, but I've seen some similarities. Um, first of all, they tend to mostly be men. Um, I've had only one woman case in all the years that I work there. For some reason, um, they seem to be men. Um, they usually are loners types. Sometimes they live at home alone. Sometimes they live with their parent. Um, they tend to not be so social. Uh, they also try, depending on the level, because there's a very big difference between those um, that view child pornography and those that actually act on it. There's a, a very distinctive level. So the ones that only view and download pornography and don't act on it, um, they tend to be maybe living at home with mom, you know, socially just not out there so much. Um, the ones that are actually acting on it, those are the ones that are mostly trying to get involved in situations with children where children are there, whether it's, you know, camp or clubs or things of that nature. When you say that it's mostly men, is it mostly white men, black men, Hispanic men? Is there a pattern? Um, I can just tell you, I'm not going to say that they're only men or they're only this type. I can tell you that my experience with my defendants have been mostly white males around 50 plus. That just seemed to be the general case with the cases that I was assigned. Again, there's no definite pattern, but that's what I experienced. Talk about their loners. Tell me about the places that they live. Do they live in nice neighborhoods? Do they live maybe like out in the country in your experience? And I realize all across the nation, it's different. But when you find out where these people are living, what 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 are some of the thoughts that come to the type of homes that they live in? Um, I guess I was in the New York area. So all of my targets were in that vicinity just because of jurisdiction. Um, but most of them, I would say, either lived alone or lived with, like I said, a single parent, usually lived still at home with mom, never moved out, um, or they just lived alone and went to work and just kind of had kind of maybe, you know, not too much socializing. That seemed to be um, what I saw, you know, most of the time. Uh, have you ever found a pattern? You know, I've watched some of these shows about serial killers and they've gone back to jail and they've interviewed them. And these men had problems in, in with their mothers growing up. Like there was a big connection with that. Is there any sort of connection of these men's living with their moms? And some, yeah, some some um, there used to be, a, you know, a, a thought that most of these predators had been violated themselves as a kid. There was some theory to that. Um, I didn't see that in my experience. There were some that had some instances as a child, but that wasn't a, you know, a for sure thing. You know, usually, you know, it didn't have to do with the fact that they were a victim and now they made someone else a victim. That wasn't always the case. Um, but I did see that they were socially kind of to themselves. And this is a very individual crime. Um, it's not, it's very private. It's very individual. So, um, most of their activities online, unless they're out actually, you know, 
um, acting on it. Most of it's online, most of it's private. They do have some group chats that they interact with, but it's kind of like an individual crime. It's not really one that they have conspirators with. It's very personal. Hmm. And is there a, a profession that rings out to you? Do these Are these people employed? Is there a profession or do they have jobs that uh, are around children or does it just completely vary? Um, I've had both. Um, they have, you know, regular jobs that don't involve children. Then I've also had uh, two particular cases. One of them was a teacher. Um, one of them was uh, a, a private piano teacher. And one of them was a regular math teacher. Um, so I've had teachers as well. I've had p- people that were camp counselors in camps. Um, this, this particular math teacher was also in the summertime. Um, he would also be a camp counselor a school bus driver for the camps in the summertime. This is years ago. Um, So you do have them in these positions of being, you know, when they act on it, they like to be in these sort of positions where they are near children. Are these specific people that you're talking about right now, the ones that are working with children, what are they focused on? They, they all have their own individual preferences as far as if they like little boys or little girls, um, depending each person is, you know, individual to that. But I would say that mostly, I would say mostly, well, it's kind of 50-50, but I think maybe more little boys than little girls, Um, but it could be both. Well, listen, since you've retired, you have started Rock ROK Investigative Group. And in that time, if somebody calls you up and they say, Rosanna, I have a teacher, I want you to investigate her. Talk about your urgency and the steps you take. The first three steps you take if somebody calls and gives you that information. Yes. So first of all, if it's obviously if it's a school teacher or anybody in that sort of position, I would contact the school district if they hadn't already and work with them. And they have um, a staff of attorneys that the school district works with. And I would work directly with the attorneys and do my part in investigating, um, you know, whether or not the allegation is is valid. Um, And then if there is something, uh, if there is evidence there, uh, then we would move forward, obviously, with contacting the local, you know, law enforcement, and we would work jointly with law enforcement, the attorneys for the school, the victims, the parents, and everybody would be involved with, you know, figuring this out and, and making sure that everyone's safe. But how, how do you confirm that? How do you confirm that without alarming all the other teachers and alarming all the students? How do you confirm if they are in it or they're not in it? It really takes a lot of interviewing and a lot of investigating. Um, we start obviously with the allegation, whether it's the child or the parent, whoever is, has the knowledge we interview, you know, I would interview them first in depth and get the story of what happened, when it happened, who it happened with, if there was anybody else that was involved, for example, I would start there. And usually from there, we get additional names of additional people and the investigation proceeds. Um, I had a case many years ago um, that started online with one suspect that was viewing child pornography online. Then we go to establish that he had an instant messenger service at the time, you know, like an instant chat online. Um, and he had a buddy list at that time. It was AOL. They had a buddy list. Um, there was about 200 something girls on that buddy list. Um, this person was arrested for improperly, you know, for in- inappropriately touching a child. And then it was my job to go through their entire buddy list and find new victims. 
So this is just kind of the way that things proceed. One thing leads into another. Um, by the end, um, myself with law enforcement, because I was still a part of uh, Homeland Security at the time, um, we developed, I think, four or five additional victims off of that buddy list. But I was working nonstop uh, for months, you know, that summer um, interviewing everybody, locating everybody, speaking to the parents, speaking to the, the people on the list. Um, you know, they were all girls in this particular instance. I had to interview, you know, hundreds of girls trying to establish their relationship with this person. Um, he ended up being a teacher as well. Um, and so, you know, the sad part is that he was, he was on my, on my radar like three years prior to this as just viewing the, the pornography, but he was very smart. And at that time, um, you weren't, there was, the law had changed now, thankfully, but at that time years ago, if you viewed it, but you didn't download, there was no criminal charges. The law just wasn't specific enough. Later, the law changed and we were able to arrest him. But all of my data that I had from years ago, plus the incident that happened then, and then also the victims that I found, all of that came together. Um, so usually if they're in this sort of um, arena, they don't stop like, you know, they need to get help, but they, they usually don't stop. Um, they usually get caught at some point. It's just a matter of, you know, when really. Is there a certain type of characteristic in a child that these predators target? They tend to target children that they feel um, maybe have issues or not stable, whether it's emotionally or um you know, they're, maybe they have an unstable household or maybe emotionally they're unstable. Um, they try and look at, you know, peop, uh, children that are followers, that are weak, I guess, you know, easily influenced maybe is a better way of putting it. Um, they look out for those kids, the ones that are seeking attention that maybe don't get attention at home or maybe they're just followers and they go with the program. Um, that's kind of the children that they look for. How do they get children not to speak? Sadly, um, they have this grooming process uh, where they groom the child, some by talking to them, some by offering them gifts or making them feel special or making them feel like they're his favorite, his or her favorite. Um, they utilize that in order to get the child to trust them. And then if something happens then they feel the guilt that, oh, this happened and I'm a bad person or I'm a bad child or, you know, they have this guilt and they work, you know, they really use their emotions to control them and to groom them into not talking. Um, and, you know, they're scared. They're obviously children. They don't know what's going on. They trust this person. You know, they've groomed them for a while to trust them. That's their friend. And so now they're doing something and they feel uneasy about it. Maybe they think it's dirty or wrong. They don't want to get in trouble. So they keep a secret. Um, but it's really about trust. They, they trust. Unfortunately, they trust the predators to, um, you know, they're thinking that they're doing the right thing or that they can't you know, they feel badly talking about this person because they're their favorite teacher or their favorite friend or, you know, so they don't want to, you know, defy them in any way, I guess. How long, and I know it varies, you know, across the board, but how long do you think through your experiences, does the grooming process take? Like, is it, is it short? Is it, is it established over months and months or does it just completely vary? 
I think it's it vary. I think it varies, but I think um, the more serious predators, I think they groom them for a, a short term, you know, for the short term. Um, sometimes they just know each other already through family or friends. Mm. Um, and so they've known each other for years and then they decide to make a move. So it may not be that they're grooming for a long time. Um, but if they're strangers, usually they need to take that time to make sure they're safe in, in the sense of, you know, acting towards this person. They want to, they want to also know that the child is not going to tell. So they need to do their own, you know, uh, I guess they need to take their time in seeing that, oh yes, I could approach this person. Um, they're not going to tell and they're going to, you know, listen to me and trust me. So it's hard to say a time frame. Everyone is different, but I think the ones that are more serious tend to take their time a little bit more. Okay. Uh, what's the, um, the outrage with parents when they discover that their, their child has been molested and it's somebody that they know, whether it is the piano teacher or, you know, a, a coach, what is the outrage that some of these parents experience? Obviously they are in shock. I think first is shock where they, you know, can't believe this happened to their kid. And most of these parents have, you know, taught their children in some way about stranger danger and things like that. Um, they never think it happens to their, you know, child, obviously they're in shock. Um, and then they're trying to figure out what happened, how this happened. And um, obviously, you know, make sure that this person doesn't do it again. That's really kind of the mindset that everyone's safe and that this person is arrested or, you know, tried whatever way it ends up um, to make sure they're off the street and not doing it to anybody else. Mm -hmm. um, what are, what are ways that these predators communicate with the children? So let's just say it's a coach. Obviously we know when, when the coach sees the ch child and things like that, what are some warning signs? Let's do in person first. Like if you're a coach or a teacher and everybody else is around, what are some warning signs that there is a special student to the teacher or the coach? Um, there could be some signs like they give them a nickname, for example. Um, they can uh, they can call them, oh, you're special or, oh, you know, they give them like compliments or you're special or you're my favorite or you're the best or something like that. Um, they also will look for, I think the main difference because um, we don't want to generalize like that, but because um, there are teachers and coaches, obviously, that that do give kudos to students um, and are not in this way. Um, but I think when they're asking for one on one time or private time, I think that's an indicator. Um, if they if they approach you in any way, uh, physically touching you, whether it's, you know, uh, in any physical way, that's that's not the normal course of business in your interactions with this person you know, um, that's usually another indication if they go to touch you in an inappropriate way, um, or speak to you or give you an, imp you know, a nickname that may not be appropriate. And also the, the private time, I think at some point during the grooming process, they're going to want to take you and have one-on-one -on -one time with you, whether it's, you know, let's go to a private extra help, or let's go talk at lunch, or let's go talk after school, or, you know, anything like that. Right. Um, they want to, they want to get them alone. Just, yeah. I'm not saying it's just teachers by any means. There are sure. great teachers out there. I'm not generalizing, but I'm just kind of giving you an example of how that would fit into a job, for example, or a counselor or something like that. 
All right. Well, as somebody who has spent over 30 years uh, doing investigations, criminal work, things like that, and raising children, what was the conversations you had with your kids about if this happens, you know, what should you do? What were the things that you told your children? I think I made them very paranoid <laughs> because I, <laughs> I saw so much that uh, they're like, okay, mom, you're over the top. You know, that was the number one. Um, but I basically said, don't talk to strangers. You know, um, if anybody asks you your name, for example, even when my daughter was small um, in the playground, even if somebody asked her for her name, I told her, don't give your real name and come to me right away. If somebody that's strange comes up to you. Um, it could be anyone. Like I was very, very protective over them. Um, my children don't have my my children don't have social media. Um, they just have an email for school barely, and then they, they they're not social media kids. They won't be on social media. They'll look at social media, but they won't have their own accounts because I felt like at least when they were little, as they're adults, they can do whatever they want to do with that. But as children, I just kind of kept them away from that. Um, because I know that the predators tend to go, you know, all over the internet and, and look and, and I just felt it was better. Um, I think my, my kids were probably the only ones at school that didn't have Instagram or Facebook or uh -huh, any of those. Uh -huh. um, so I, I just protected them that way. And I would just tell them, you know, if anything felt uncomfortable, walk away, you know, and if anybody approaches you that you don't know, you know, be careful, go to an adult, go to a law enforcement, go to some sort of teacher or anything like that authority figure and ask for help if you're uncomfortable. Um, those are the basic things that I kind of taught them when they were young. Did they ever tell you anything? Did they ever report anything to you, whether you're at a park or a schoolyard? Did they ever come up to you and say, hey, that person over there has made me feel funny? Yeah, my uh, yeah, there has been some times in the past where they were in a public setting and somebody would approach them more my daughter than my son, because obviously she's a she's a young girl um, where somebody may have approached and asked her or started talking to her. That was a stranger and she would report it back to me or let me know. Awesome. Um, but she knows she would just walk away, you know, and get out of the area and, you know, and let me know. So awesome. Awesome. Uh, how dangerous on a scale of one to ten? How dangerous is social media for young children? I think that it really depends on the child and their, um, you know, I guess the way they were raised, I guess what they're used to um, and their sense of, uh, I guess, evaluating the situation. You know, there are many, there are lots of kids that are on social media that could be on social media and they're safe. They know to stay away from strangers and things like that. But if you feel that your child may not be strong enough to, you know, if they want to just kind of get along with everyone and they're going to talk to people that they don't know and interact with people that they don't know, that's where it becomes a little bit dangerous. But as long as they stick with their circle of friends or family that they actually know, I always say, put a face to it. Um, that's what I used to tell my children. If you're online or you're anywhere and you see someone that you don't recognize that you don't know that you can't put a face to, and they're texting you, then you don't answer or they're sending you a message, you don't answer. If you don't recognize the name, recognize the number, recognize the face. If you don't know that person personally, then you don't interact with them unless you're sure. Because it's, you know, as long as you stick to your, the people that you know, it's, it's probably the best advice I can give in that. Arena. Yeah. And it's kind of like today's world as, as adults, if we don't know who's calling on our phones, we don't answer. Exactly. I mean, so, but so many people don't answer if they don't recognize the number 
or it's not in their contacts. Exactly. So the same thing for young kids and social media. Um, I definitely think that it's part of our society and everybody's on it. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's a good way to keep connected with people as long as you know who you're talking to. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, through your investigations, well, first of all, I always am like, there's gotta be warning signs. There's gotta be warning signs. So have you ever, obviously you have, but you know, you've, you have found somebody they're concerning you're hot on their trail and now you're questioning them. How, how can you tell they're lying? What are some ways that we are like, oh, I'm pretty sure this person's not telling me the truth. Yeah, there's there's certain physical things that people do They're You know, sometimes they're um, they're sweating. Um, they tend not to look at you straight in the you know, they'll look down, they'll look away. Um, you know, they're their heart is racing or they're, you know, you can tell that they're kind of worked up. Um, you know, there are different everyone's and there are people that don't show any signs, you know, but usually by talking to them, um, when I interview someone, obviously I know their background. I have so much, you know, uh, history on them and background on them. I won't interview someone until I have all of the information before I even show up. So a lot of the times I'll challenge them with questions that I know the answers to already. Um, and see where they, where they, you know, where they lay at that point. Um, but physical signs, you can see, usually they don't want to look at you for the most part there, or they're avoiding the questions, or they'll say, I don't know, um, you know, things like that, or some signs of people that aren't completely, you know, being honest. Yeah, the I don't knows and I don't remembers. That's the classic. I don't know is a big one. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. But if I check your computer, I think that we will. Yes. know. Yeah, I, I don't know. Is that, a big please? One. Yeah. Yes. Uh, now you're certified to interview children. You're a certified forensic interviewer. Is that the correct title? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and I know I don't I don't expect you to share a lot about um, when you when you do interview a child. But I do want to say, do you does it take long once you start interviewing a child for them to come forward and tell you tell you that? the truth? It's uh, every case obviously is different, but my experience has been, it's definitely not the first time. It's usually, you know, it's a sensitive topic. These are victims, these are children. And, and of course, they're not going to trust a complete stranger when they first show up, even though they're allowed to speak with me. Um, it still takes time to build that rapport with them and to I really try to take my time and I'm very empathetic and I try and talk them through and say, I understand that, you know, this is difficult for you to talk about, but I've interviewed many children just like you and I'm here to help and we'll take as long as you want and, you know, whatever you need to feel comfortable. Um, and we go through it step by step. We start from the beginning and we go through it. And usually maybe three times between the third and fourth time, that's when we really get, we'll get bits and pieces. And then I'll have to kind of go out and, and investigate a little further, come back with more information. And usually um, by the third or fourth interview, we're pretty much, you know, getting the full story. And it's not that they don't want to tell the story. It's just that it's obviously a very sensitive, difficult position to be in. And so it takes time to trust people and be able to tell your story. Not all, not everybody's able to do that. So yeah, I give them a lot of credit. Sure, sure. And there's, there's got to be something on your side where you do make them feel comfortable and they can, and you do build that trust with them. Maybe it's the fact that you speak three different languages to eliminate any barriers. Yes, that's helpful. I'm a native Spanish speaker. 
Um, and I also speak basic Mandarin Chinese. Um, I felt during my career that as you, um, you know, deal with people on a daily basis, and they're always in some sort of conflict situation, whether it's the victim or the suspect, um, it's very helpful to be able to speak to people in their own language. They always feel more comfortable speaking in their native language. So I felt that I got more information, that we were able to cooperate, uh, you know, discuss things in a better way. And it just worked out all around to be able to um, talk to them in their native language. So I took I did a lot of um, Asian Chinese cases in Manhattan um, a while back, not pornography, but um, in fraud and criminal cases in the past. And I felt that it was just easier to gather information and get in and, and share information when I was able to speak to them in their native tongue, so to speak. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Now, I know uh, you've made some big arrests over the years. Do you have a favorite case that you want to share with us? Um, I have a, yes, I have one case that was interesting. Um, I went uh, back in the, like I was telling you in, in the beginning of my career, um, there was a person that was viewing pornography, um, but not downloading it. And the, the laws had changed since then, but that was the time then. So I went to uh, visit this person and I was trying to get the computers. I knew he that he was that he was viewing them on the internet, but I couldn't prove that he was downloading them. And this person was really smart, and he would, I guess, download them on external hard drives and hard, and hide them so that when we got there, there was nothing there for me to see. So I went there one time, and and I'm a firm believer of getting the bad guy, so to speak, and uh, you know, and I don't give up. And that's one of the things that that stands by me. I never give up. If I'm if I'm working on a case, I am there until the end. Like I will not, I will be relentless until I find out what the truth is. And so he was there and I went to his house twice and he still played the same game. You know, I knew what he was doing, but unfortunately the law didn't allow me to, I could still investigate, but I wasn't able to arrest him at that time. So he stayed on my radar for I want to say three years or so. Um, so I visited him a third time and I said to him, listen, I know what you're doing. I know you're viewing this. I know you have it. I know you're looking at it. But um, if you see me again, you're going to be arrested like this. Next time you see me, this is going to be it. Like you need to stop doing what you're doing. Apparently, this person had some issues, you know, mental health issues, and he became very paranoid. And so he would call me and tell me, ask me if his case was closed. He said that I was like following him around um, and all this stuff. He became very paranoid. So finally, um, about four years later, I get a phone call from a sheriff's office in New York. And he said that a, a person came into his precinct with a whole bunch of stuff, media and stuff, and hard drives and discs and I don't know what else, and that they had my business card in his pocket. Now, this is from like four years ago. He was carrying my business card in his pocket. So he called me and I said, I have no idea who is this. So he gave me the name and I said, oh, I know who that is. I said, I've, he's been on my radar for years. I said, but he's not saving anything. And this is the situation. And he said, oh, no, he told me to call you up and to tell you that he can't take it anymore with the guilt <laughs> that, you, that you were investigating him for so long that he can't take it anymore. And he brought me all his stuff. And he said, there's child pornography on there and that he needs to let, you know, tell me to stop investigating him. <laughs> so uh, four years later, we still got what we needed. So he, I guess his guilt took him over. And eventually, like I said, they, you know, eventually they're, they're caught. 
one way or another. Yeah, no, that's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, you put you put fear in him, the poor guy. Yeah, really the poor, the poor guy. guy but... <laughs> yeah, he was just very paranoid, and he knew he was doing wrong. So, eventually, his own, you know, guilt took over, and which. And- which I can't believe that somebody who does this actually has guilt. I mean, just to just to be honest, yeah. it's hard to imagine that he actually felt guilty, but you obviously made an impact. Yes, there was one other individual that was uh, actually ended on a good note that I wanted to share. Um, this person was viewing child pornography, but it was only while he was uh, he was addicted to drugs. And so he would only view it while he was addicted to drugs. I arrested him for that. And at his sentencing, um, he rehabilitated, he got off drugs, he ended up helping other juveniles that had this problem, you know, other uh, people that had this problem. And at the sentencing, he said that I saved his life because he was arrested. He was able to get off drugs, be able to go back to work, reunited with his family because he was disconnected from his family at the time and live a clean life. And now he's actually helping others that are dealing with this drug addiction and he's no longer doing this anymore. So that was wow. a positive story that he said, basically that I had saved his life. Um, because yeah. if it wasn't for that, he didn't know where he would, would have ended up. Yeah. So there thank are you some for sharing that. Yeah. There are some stories where they actually are able to get better. Uh, all right. Is there anything you want to share today with the audience that I haven't asked you about? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I guess just trust your gut. I guess, trust your gut. Um, If you ever in a situation that you feel uncomfortable, even though you think that it might be silly, um, always trust your gut and your instincts. And if it doesn't feel right, just walk away. Yeah, I'm a big believer in that. And I think getting that, like, it's, you know, it's such an easy saying, you know, and I I try to, you know, when when I do my classes and I speak, I always say, remember this, your intuition doesn't need to be defined. You know, a lot of times people would be will say like, why don't you trust that woman? Or why don't you trust that man? Like what they do? Like, you don't have to have an answer. You don't have to give them concrete that they did something. That's intuition. It is that gut feeling that you're speaking about. That's exactly right. Just always go with your first thought and mm-hmm. just be cautious. Um, that's, that's really it. You know, go yeah. with your gut. You don't need to have a reason or, you know, to explain, you just go with the way, you know, you're feeling and and trust your judgment. Yeah, I love it. I love it. All right. Well, listen, you are now part of the ripple effect. I know I'm going to meet you in the fall in your um, in your location. And I look forward to that. But I want to thank you for sharing your expertise today with our audience. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. If you would like to share your story in an effort to create awareness and education for others, please email me at info at alwaysbev.com. And if you are enjoying this podcast, please subscribe so you are notified about new episodes and please give it a rating or a comment. I don't ask for much, but I do appreciate all the comments that I have received thus far. Always Bev has now completed 50 episodes in five seasons. Season six will begin August 2022. In the meantime, stay safe and be vigilant. I'm your host, Barb Jordan. Thanks for joining me in another episode of Always Bev, The Ripple Effect.